Blog Talk Radio.
to the Horn of African nation are continuing to interfere in its internal affairs. And Tanzania has accepted a grant to address the need uh, to preserve its biodiversity. In the second hour, we look deeper into the Sudanese crisis uh, where the popular organizations are demanding the resignation of the military junta. Finally, we examine uh, some of the most burning and pressing issues of the day on the African continent and uh, internationally. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. Uh, we'll take a musical interlude, and we'll be back uh, with more of the Pan-African Journal for this week.
Journal, Worldwide uh, Radio Broadcast for today, uh, which is Saturday, October 30th, uh, 2021. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. Uh, We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again uh, to yet another edition uh, of our program. Right now, we want to move into our Pan-African Newswide segment. Our lead story uh, deals with the current situation in the West African state of Mali, hundreds of uh, Malian protesters uh, took to the streets in the capital of Bamako to demonstrate against the French military presence in that West African country. The uh, protesters gathered in central Bamako yesterday, uh, chanting uh, anti-France slogans and calling for the total withdrawal of French troops uh, from their country. We are here uh, for Mali. Uh, we are here to demonstrate our national sovereignty, to remind the whole world that sovereignty belongs to the people and that those uh, who have not understood this must get up uh, to speed today. Uh, that's according to Mohammed Usman Mohamedoun, a member of the Mali's National Transition Council and a protest organizer. Uh, because the transition for us today is the result of decades of mismanagement, misgovernance of our country, and bad partnerships, uh, he added. Mali has become increasingly engulfed in violence uh, since the Tuareg uprising of 2012. Later, this was hijacked uh, by extremist militants uh, who perpetuated and perpetrated uh, ethnic killings and attacks on governmental forces and civilians despite the presence of French and United Nations troops. Earlier this month, uh, Malian Prime Minister Jogu Kakala Maiga said there is evidence uh, that France had been training terrorist groups uh, operating in the West African country. Mali says it has uh, evidence that France has been training terrorist groups operating in the West African country. A French mission um, began operating in Mali eight years ago in 2013 to allegedly counter militants that Paris claims are linked uh, to the Al-Qaeda and Daesh terrorist groups. This summer, French President Emmanuel Macron announced a gradual drawdown of France's military presence in the Sahel and the end of the French military operation known as Burkani. Mali accused France of abandoning the conflict-ravaged country with the unilateral decision to withdraw troops. Mali's military-dominated government then asked private Russian security companies for help in its fight against terrorism. Ever since, uh, tensions have been high between France and its former colonies. The uh, French uh, Burkina Fani forces 
operating in Mali, uh, Chad, Niger, Burkina Faso, and Mauritania, currently uh, is estimated at 5,000 troops in the entire region. And uh, in the nation of the Republic of Sudan, uh, it has drawn the attention of the international community. Uh, the coup d'etat, which occurred uh, on October the 25th, along uh, with the subsequent uh, mass demonstrations uh, that have erupted throughout the country demanding an end uh, to military rule. The Iranian foreign ministry says that Iran is closely monitoring Sudan's recent development in the wake of a military coup. They have called on the Sudanese sides to engage in dialogue and to ensure the promised democratic transition of power that it is carried out in this uh, North and Central African state. Uh, Foreign Ministry uh, spokesman Saeed Kassizadeh said yesterday uh, that the suspicious events that occurred in recent days in Sudan clearly do not contribute to the process of democratic transition in the African country. The undemocratic removal of part of the governing body ignores the will of the Sudanese people and will not achieve the goals that the people of the country are pursuing. There are signs of effective interference of foreign agents in these developments to such an extent that Zionists do not conceal the fact that they are pleased with these actions. That's according to the Iranian foreign ministry. The foreign ministry spokesman also said that Iran emphasizes the need for vigilance by the Sudanese governing council and invites all internal parties in the country to take part in an all-inclusive Sudanese dialogue. Huge anti-government rallies, mostly over deteriorating economic problems, engulfed Sudan more than two years ago, with protesters, mostly young Sudanese, demanding former President Omar al-Bashir step down. Bashir was ultimately deposed through a military coup following months of protest in April of 2019 after ruling over the African country for three decades. In August that year, a governing council comprised of civilian and military leaders was founded in the country to run the country. A transitional civilian military administration, uh, Sudan's highest executive authority, is tasked uh, with leading the country to free and fair multi-party elections. However, a military coup uh, was staged uh, just this last past Monday that dissolved the fragile government. Prime Minister Abdallah Hamdok uh, was detained and put under house arrest in a move that infuriated the Sudanese international outcry, including uh, from the United Nations Security Council. Now, other civilian leaders were also uh, placed uh, in detention. The 15-member council on Thursday urged the restoration of the civilian-led transitional government and called for the immediate release of all those detained by the military. Hours after the apparent military coup, Sudan's main opposition coalition called for civil disobedience and protest across the country. General Abdel Fattah al-Bahan, Sudan's de facto leader since 2019, insists that the army's seizure of power does not constitute a coup alleging that the transitional government was overthrown to avoid a civil war in Sudan. Brahan has already fired six Sudanese ambassadors, including uh, to the United States, the European Union, the People's Republic of China, and France, uh, who had expressed their opposition to his actions. Anti-coup protesters in Sudan 
uh, planned uh, mass demonstrations, and uh, there was a series of demonstrations that were held uh, today. And since Monday, the military has mounted a harsh crackdown on the protesters who have been chanting slogans like returning to the past is not an option and civilian rule is the people's choice. According to medics, at least 11 people have been killed and 170 others wounded in protests since the army uh, took power. The U.S., EU, and Britain, as well as Norway and other countries in a joint statement stressed their continued recognition of the prime minister and his cabinet as the constitutional leaders of the transitional government. And uh, we'll have more on Sudan, uh, giving some background to uh, developments that have occurred uh, this week. And um, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. And in other news uh, taking place uh, across uh, the African continent, in the Horn of Africa state of Ethiopia, Uh, The United States, as well as some officials within the United Nations, have taken a position in support of the rebels uh, who are attempting to destabilize the government. Now, some officials of the United Nations are shamefully continuing to interfere with the internal affairs of Ethiopia. That's according to Mercurim Miftah. He's a policy study lecturer at the Civil Service University. In an interview with the Tigray Media House, uh, terrorist TPLF's mouthpiece, Gersho Rede, uh, stated that, quote, while talking on the phone with a high-level U.N. official, he said that, quote, why do not the Army generals come together and overthrow Abiy Ahmed from power? Now, regarding the aforesaid issue and other related issues that are indicative of U.N.'s uh, biased practices, the Ethiopian Herald approached Mukarim Miftah, a policy study lecturer at the Ethiopian Civil Service University. Mukarim said that the United Nations stance regarding Ethiopia's law enforcement operation is biased towards the terrorist TPLF, and it does not take into account the reality on the ground. There is much evidence to support this, he added. He restated that the United Nations was established with the aim of maintaining Uh, international peace and security, to promote the well-being of the peoples of the world, and international cooperation uh, to these ends. He also noted uh, that it is difficult to say that the United Nations since its inception has been serving countries of the world in a fair and impartial manner uh, with a global structure. In the 1990s, conflicts have erupted in Bosnia, Kashmir, Rwanda, Palestine, and elsewhere, As a result of these conflicts, a large number of people around the world have died, he added. But the United Nations has done nothing to stop these conflicts and save lives other than issuing statements, he indicated. In general, the United Nations has not been successful in the past in promoting world peace and stability, he said, adding that not only being ineffective, the U.N. is under the influence of superpowers and its decisions are in favor of a few of the world's uh, superpowers, according uh, to uh, this uh, scholar. And uh, finally, uh, in the uh, southern African nation of uh, Tanzania, uh, Germany on Thursday granted Tanzania 45 million euros 
about 52.6 million U.S. dollars to support various projects, including emergency and recovery support uh, for uh, biodiversity. According to a statement by the Ministry of Finance and Planning, the grant will also finance the promotion of water security and climate resilience in urban areas. It will improve health care and traffic management for protected areas through digital solutions. On Tuesday, Germany granted uh, Tanzania 71 million euros for financing various projects, including those initiated to fight poaching and to prevent human-wildlife conflicts. Agreements on the 45 million euros grants were signed in the commercial capital of Dar es Salaam by the Permanent Secretary in the Ministry of Finance and Planning, Emmanuel uh, Tutuba, and the German ambassador to Tanzania, Regine Hess. Tuba said the emergency and recovery support for biodiversity aims at providing funding to support COVID-19 repercussions for Tanzania, its tourism sector. He said the objective of the traffic management for protected areas through digital solutions project is to uh, control traffic problems in four national parks in Serengeti, uh, Burigo, Chateau, Amikumi, and Katavi. Tituba said the traffic problems will be controlled by installing systems for monitoring and controlling vehicles, drivers and passengers entering the parks in order to mitigate the traffic problems in uh, the parks. With that, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of our program. We want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. This press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since that time, the agency has published thousands upon thousands of articles and dispatches in numerous newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to uh, the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to have access uh, to uh, today's uh, Pan-African Journal, the worldwide uh, radio broadcast, uh, just go uh, to uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. Programs can be shared with other potential listeners via email, blogs and websites, as well as social media networks such as Facebook and Twitter. We'll take a break. Uh, We'll be back with more of our program for this week.
Welcome back, and uh, that was uh, the music of Phyllis Hyman, Deep Inside of You, and you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast, and uh, we're going to examine more deeply uh, the current uh, political crisis inside the Republic of Sudan. Here is a report on events uh, that took place today uh, where uh, many people uh, went into the streets and demonstrated in a day of action demanding uh, the resignation of the military junta, which had seized power just this last past Monday, October 25th. Let's listen in. It's been days in the making, thousands have galvanized on the streets of Khartoum, demanding a return to a transitional government, something they say was robbed from them after the military coup on Monday. They're risking a lot. Days of protests in the capital led to street-to-street battles with the military and demonstrators killed. We went to the street because we reject the military rule and we reject authoritarianism and we categorically reject all the behavior of the military council. We want to topple the security committee and bring it down. We don't trust these people. This is not their first coup. We need the world to know that the Sudanese people are living under oppression and are being beaten. Our voices are not listened to because there is no coverage and there is no internet. With the internet cut off, organizers use mosques, flyers and graffiti to reach people. The military also blocked the main road to the airport, the planned route of this march. What is really concerning is the vast you know, array of military and security actors that are on the street. There are just incredible set uh, of, 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 of security sectors that now patrol the streets. Um, it, no sense that they are necessarily taking orders from a central spot. And I think that, um, you know, that diversity of different military actors is really the worry. These demonstrators are demanding that Prime Minister Abdullah Hamdok's cabinet be restored. It was toppled by General Abdel Fattah al-Barhan. He also dissolved the Sovereign Council established after the overthrow of Omar al-Bashir two years ago. Barhan says he will hold elections in July 2023 and then hand power to the elected civilian government. But the takeover has received international condemnation. The UN and US has called on the military not to intervene in the protests. The people on Khartoum streets call it a power grab and demand a return to a democratic process. Laura Badamanli, Al Jazeera. Uh, Welcome back, and uh, that uh, gave a brief overview of developments uh, today uh, in uh, Khartoum and other areas uh, of the Republic of Sudan. Uh, This uh, report coming up uh, gives more uh, background information on developments uh, just this last past week. After months of building tensions between Sudan's military and civilian factions, a coup the Prime Minister is one of many arrested. A state of emergency has been imposed and the Transitional Sovereign Council and government dissolved. So what does the road ahead look like for Sudan? This is Inside Story.
Hello and welcome to the program. I'm Hashim Ahalbarra. Many people in Sudan have been expecting a transition to democracy. It was promised by the country's generals and civilian leaders who have shared power for nearly two years. But that's been thrown into uncertainty following a military coup. Sudan's army declared a state of emergency, dissolved the governing council and arrested many political leaders. Prime Minister Abdullah Hamdouk is among those detained. Pro-democracy supporters have called for protests, setting the stage for a possible showdown with the armed forces. Internet and mobile phone services were shut down and the airport closed. Military Chief Abdel Fattah al-Burhan cited political infighting for the military intervention. His pledge to hold elections as scheduled in 2023. <laughs> We dissolve the Sovereign Council and the Cabinet and we put an end to the Mayor's jobs and Undersecretaries and the State Governors. We'll revise everything and we'll take decisions towards everything. We urge everyone to abide by the agreement of Juba 2020. We stress and confirm that some of our people in the East have their own sufferings and we are quite sure that justice and peace must prevail. We must work hard to reach lasting solutions for our people. Sudan has been governed by a joint civilian-military body known as the Sovereign Council since long-time ruler Omar al-Bashir was ousted in April 2019. It was part of a power-sharing deal that included holding elections and transitioning to civilian rule. But divisions have emerged in recent months between the military and civilian leaders. Tensions grew after a coup attempt blamed on followers of Bashir was foiled in last month. Then earlier this month, supporters of the military leaders took to the streets to call on the army to take back control. Pro-democracy groups said it was an attempt by the military to retake power. On Saturday, tens of thousands of people held protests to show solidarity with the transitional government. Let's bring in our guests from Doha. We have Walid Madibo, founder and president of the Sudan Policy Forum in Nairobi. Jonas Horner, deputy director for Horn of Africa and senior analyst for Sudan at the International Crisis Group. And over in Edinburgh, Scotland, Alex Duar, executive director of the World Peace Foundation and research professor at the Tufts Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy. Thank you all for joining us. Walid, by dissolving the ruling council, the transitional government, declaring state of emergency, arresting senior government officials, including Prime Minister Abdullah Hamdouk, what is army chief trying to say here? Uh, if, if we decompose uh, uh, and scrutinize uh, the speech of uh, uh, Mr. Burhan, especially if we look at articles 11, 12, 15, 16, 24, 71, and 72 that were eliminated from the new constitutional document that he, uh, he, is, he said he is uh, ready uh, to abide with. Uh, there are two categories here. There are three articles that has to do with him issuing decrees. Uh, and, and there is the other category which has to do with, uh, he, he has done away with the article that had to do with dismantling uh, of uh, the Islamist state and combating of corruption. And the other article 
had to do with, he had done away with the article that dealt with investigating the crime of mm -hmm. June 19, uh, and at, at, at which uh, point uh, we, we all remember that about 1,800 protesters that were uh, uh, attacked using lethal, lethal weapons, and uh, we don't know, there are some that are still missing. So if, if you look at him removing those two articles, those two important articles, it seems that the army was pushed to the corner since there was no discourse between the civilians and the army officers in the sovereign council. It seems that uh, there was no room for compromise. Uh, uh, it, it seems that the officers uh, feared this whole thing of investigating the crime and they didn't want to go with dismantling the Islamist state, which is going to weaken their position in power. So you're basically saying that uh, uh, the military establishment is trying to prevent any prosecution in the near future, which was part of the power sharing with the civilians about the atrocities committed, and particularly those that were committed uh, during the, absolutely. Uh, the, the uh, after 2019. Jonas, is it fair to say that all the power sharing deals and all the architecture that was uh, started post-April 2019 are now scrapped, are now part of the past? Uh, I don't think that necessarily has to be the case. Um, and, you know, it's, it's odd up until now there had been considerable effort from, from, from all sides in many ways to, to somehow stay within the norms of the, the Constitutional Declaration and also the Juba Agreement, even though there was very little in the way of, of, of implementation. Um, so, so, you know, I, I wouldn't say that this is, this is uh, entirely over, and there have been uh, efforts even before today to broker the sort of uh, peace and, and um, an accord between the three components of this, uh, three main components of this transition, which are the armed groups who came in after the Juba Agreement, uh, the, the military and, and the FFC. Um, but but they, they've, they've all, there have been efforts to try to put together a deal that would allow everyone mm -hmm. to have a little bit of what they want. But uh, what we've seen this morning is, is the tearing asunder uh, of that effort. I wouldn't say these institutions are over, but um, they've certainly been rocked. Alex, when you look at the, uh, at the announcement, so basically uh, Abdel Fattah al-Burhan is saying that the sovereign council goes along with the transitional government, but the transitional military council that started the coup in 2019 stays in power, which means that Abdel Fattah Burhan will remain the ultimate uh, authority in Sudan. And he says that he will form a new government, he will also uh, form the legisl legislative council, and he will ensure that elections will be held in 2023. I mean, it could be a clear message that, you know what, you have to deal with me from now onwards. It's a naked brutal power grab and no language that comes out of Al-Burhan's mouth can mask the basic reality that what he is trying to do is to tear up the aspirations of the Sudanese people as expressed in the 2019 revolution. The revolutionaries, the Democrats, were ready to compromise with the military. They were ready to allow the military to, to, to retain a considerable share in power. And um, also very problematically, I, um, 
they were unable to, to roll back the military's control over many commanding sectors of the economy. And when they tried to do that, and when the prospect of the head of the um, sovereignty council being rotated, as was it agreed from the military to the civilians in the coming months, Al-Burhan said, no, he, is, he basically wants to seize power. Quite what he expects to achieve with this, other than returning Sudan to the status quo ante before the revolution, mm-hmm. I really don't know. Walid, do you think that the cohabitation between the civilians and the army in Sudan is over by the decision made today by uh, Abdel Fattah al-Burhan? Uh, absolutely. I think uh, the, uh, except for uh, uh, the Islamists and some FICO fans here and there, I don't think that any, uh, any individual with some credibility uh, among the Sudanese elite uh, will be willing to work with, the, with, with this uh, military junta. And if, if we were to critique the tactic, I mean, no one would have imagined that al-Burhan will adopt this drastic methodology, knowingly that uh, he is just using the name of the army. It was basically the rapid, the RSF, the rapid forces that uh, secured uh, the, the areas that were sensitive and, uh, and, and, and made an attempt to secure other uh, facilities that are of critical importance to the government, it is basically the RSF that has uh, uh, helped Burhan succeed in his uh, uh, this coup d'etat. So should, should there, the, the coup d'etat fail due to external or internal pressure, I think there are going to be some very serious divisions within the army, mm-hmm. at which point there is going to be some very bloody confrontation between the army and the militias that uh, already are already in Khartoum. So God forbid that uh, this, uh, this coup d'etat fail, there is going to be a confrontation between the army, which feels very much subsided, okay. and the, the, the militias that came from abroad. Jonas, it seems that uh, the army and the civilians are on a collision course, but the question is, what kind of leverage does the civilian uh, establishment uh, have in Sudan in the near future to reverse the decisions made by, the, uh, by, by al-Fatah al-Burhan? Well, very few. Uh, you know, obviously people have come out very speedily onto the streets to express their opposition to, to the military's unilateral takeover of, of power. Um, and it really is, you know, this all began with collective action in, in late 2018 and moving into 2019 and, and delivered, you know, the inspiring and, and, and pretty historic removal after 30 years of Omar al-Bashir. So, you know, those tactics have worked before. They also relied heavily on nonviolence, uh, which confounded the military in many ways. And so uh, along with collective action and a return to some of the proven structures, such as the Sunni's Professionals Association, you know, the, the, there's also a need for, for a real championing of, of the sorts of messaging and, and the causes that the people on the streets um, are, are going to want to see. Um, you know, they have also avoided quite clear leadership throughout the revolution, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and they may pursue this approach again, you know, especially given that uh, the, 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 the talisman um, for, for, for the revolution to date, um, however strong or weak he may have been, Abde, uh, you know, Abdullah Hamdok, the prime minister, has been, has been uh, ghosted away. 
Alex, I mean, it was not a secret at all that the military takeover was just going to be a matter of time. You look at the protests, pro, uh, military protests that were choreographed by the establishment. You look at the statements made by the military following the, uh, the attempted coup last month. But the question is, why would al-Burhan go for these drastic measures when he knows that no one in the international community, the main backers, the main donors, reject military takeovers? That is the big puzzle. The one legitimate criticism that he may have had of the civilian government was that it had failed to deliver on the, the promise of uh, economic stabilization. The economic crisis in Sudan remains dire. And that's actually very largely the, the responsibility of the international donors who were very, very slow in, in providing the necessary assistance to stabilize Sudan. But they have been doing that over the last few months. The, the, we have had debt rescheduling, debt relief, the lifting of the state sponsors of terror designation, the beginnings of economic normalization. And that can be credited to the civilian leadership and especially to, to Abdullah Hamdok. Now, there is no chance that the United States, the European Union, the World Bank, etc., are going to come in and, and, and say, oh, we don't mind having uh, uh, the democratic transition torn up. The other option that the uh, Al-Burhan might have is to get some cash in hand from the Saudis and the Emiratis. Mm -hmm. But that is not either. And it's striking that the Arab League came with a statement that didn't just call for dialogue, but called for a return to the constitutional agreement of 2019. And I think it's not likely that the Arab League would have got very much out of step with the, with the Egyptians. So it is quite uh, unclear to me where possible foreign financial support for Al-Burhan's putsch is going to come from. Walid, we, we, we've seen all of those statements coming from the U.S., from the EU, from uh, different key players denouncing the uh, decisions made by Al-Burhan. But do you think that this could be translated into sanctions targeting the military uh, regime? It's, it's un, unclear. If, if we investigate the, the geographic landscape, you, I think Al-Burhan would not have attempted this coup d'etat without, without getting approval from the Egyptians or from UAE. But if you look at, 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 the, at the situation of Sudan, it's, a, it's a, a country that's trying to make a transition to democracy, and it's in the midst of a region that is dominated by autocrats. Uh, so in, uh, they don't like democracy, but they do have a distaste for Islamists. So it's not clear if Burhan is just going to, in the absence of any political and social uh, grounding, it's not yet clear that he will just go back to coalescing with the Islamists. If he does such a thing, then that is, that's a definite suicide. But it, let us bear in mind that the Americans, uh, I mean, the American special envoy, the, uh, the, some of the European special envoys were in Khartoum only 48 hours ago. Mm -hmm. So it's, we don't know if they have given Al-Burhan the green light or whether they, uh, they just uh, stipulated some conditions here and there. But I think what is at stake is, is the economic situation. It is, it, the situation now is worsening, the living conditions are bad, there is an economic crisis, and there is a need for to come in 
uh, already there okay. are uh, three billion uh, dollars uh, coming from the from the World Bank, but it was it's not clear if uh, the civilians now have the institutional capacity needed to prepare projects for such uh, for such task. It's a very huge task. Jonas uh, Al Burhan made it clear that he will preserve. He wants to preserve the Juba agreement that was signed with the two key factions operating in Darfur and South Kordovan. But do you think that these factions will be willing to be part of an establishment when we know from the beginning they were always skeptical of the military junta? They, they saw them as reminiscent of the old order and they were only encouraged when they said, you know what, perhaps with the civilians, Sudan would be a different country to live in. Well, speaking with essentially all of the commanders who'd signed on to the agreement back during the talks in, in, in Juba, what I found was, uh, you know, a set of gentlemen who were in many ways much more concerned about ending up um, uh, on the side of, of, of the winner. Um, you know, there was real... Um, concerned that the civilians had the strength and capacity and wherewithal to actually uh, deliver this transition. And uh, in many ways, as you've seen with the split of the um, forces Freedom and Change and Sudan Revolutionary Front uh, just two or three weeks ago, um, you've seen the finance minister and, and head of the Justice and Equality Movement, Jibril Ibrahim, uh, and Mini Minawi of the Sudan Liberation Army um, take off in, in, in their own direction and, and ostensibly in the direction of the military because they feel that were they to be faced with the sort of elections and, and open, uh, you know, test of their popularity um, that the transition is meant to create, uh, that they would lose very badly, um, that they, they would not be, be, be uh, competitive candidates. And so they have decided to, uh, rather than uh, standing behind the sorts of values that put them in the bush fighting against the mm -hmm. government for 20 years or so, they've decided to, 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 to hew much more closely towards the military, who they do see as much more likely to be able to deliver them uh, a more sustained uh, uh, run at power. It was, Alex, it was quite obvious for quite some time in Sudan that the military establishment is trying to co-opt the elite, to bribe tribal leaders, to try to influence the decision-making decision process in the country. But to what extent that could be helpful in the near future? We're talking about a country that has been beset for, for decades and decades by instability and dictatorship. Well, that was absolutely the, the method that was used by Omar al-Bashir to stay in power. We call it the political marketplace, just buying off the, the, the provincial elites, the, the, the tribal elders, the militia commanders, rebel leaders, etc., etc. And Mini Minawi and Jibril Ibrahim were, were also players in this game. And yes, I'm sure that is what al-Burhan is going to try and do in the short term. But he faces not only the problem that he cannot buy off the international community and he cannot buy off the street, but also there are the two most significant uh, rural provincial armed groups, the, the Sudan Liberation Movement of Abdul Wahid al-Nur in Darfur and the SPLM North of uh, Abdulaziz al-Hillu in, in the Nuba Mountains in South Kordofan, they had not yet bought into the Juba Agreement. Mm -hmm. And there's a very real risk that um, the active armed conflict with these two groups will resume at scale. Mm -hmm. So Al-Burhan al is actually not only risking uh, the entire democratic transition, but he's also jeopardizing the completion of an incomplete peace process in, in Kordofan and Darfur.
Uh, I have very few questions uh, left. Uh, Walid, first of all, and briefly, if you don't mind, those moderate civilians who had hopes that this could be conducive to a genuine democracy in Sudan, when they saw what happened, when they saw what they described as a betrayal by the army chief, do you think that this could lead them to more of an aggressive stance in the near future? Uh, I believe that uh, the, the, the elites uh, are going to uh, maintain the peaceful tactics attempted against uh, the Sudanese dictator Omar al-Bashir and now uh, against uh, al-Burhan. Uh, however, my fear some comes from the fact that uh, people are already out in the streets. And, and they are uh, uh, adamantly against this coup d'etat. And should things worsen, there is going to be a confrontation which may lead to some bloodshed. Uh, imagine, I mean, during at the mm -hmm. June of 2019, at the sit-in, some 1,800 protesters were killed. Now, we're not talking about a, a, a protest in a very concise place. We're talking about a protest, a, a nationwide protest. And, and I think that right. I, I just pray to God that things won't go to, to this uh, extent. Jonas, the army is not a cohesive entity in Sudan. You have the professional uh, soldiers. You have those who were loyal to the al-Bashir. You have Hamiti, who is widely considered as an outsider. And do you think that this institution itself will be able to move forward united under the command of uh, al-Burhan for as long as it takes? I think the current dispensation and certainly the, you know, the, the events of the last few weeks uh, have been incredibly short-sighted, and they're based all on very short-term interests. You know, once those short-term interests do not serve the stakeholders who are part of them anymore, mm -hmm. um, they will have to go on a new hunt for, 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 for new partners. So, um, you know, I, I think, you know, those you know, th those divisions are destined to, to, to bite the military mm -hmm. uh, back ultimately. Um, and I think, you know, one, you know, underappreciated component here and, and a catalyst for today's events really was uh, Egypt's integral role in bringing the rapid support forces and the Sudan armed forces back together okay. in early June. Two forces were very close to, to battle themselves inside Khartoum. Alex, this is exactly the dream that Al-Burhan and the TMC was trying to sell to the people of Sudan. Under our control, if you go along with us for the transitional period, we will offer peace, stability and we will be a much stronger nation for the near future. Those people who saw what happened with those announcements, do you think that they will feel that everything has been completely shattered, leaving the country in a total limbo? I think Al-Burhan's credibility is at an all-time low. Um, it's, he, he really doesn't speak with the authority of a man who can be trusted or a man who commands the political landscape. And uh, one's hope in the coming weeks is that actually the military, having shown its hand, it will be unable to accomplish any of the tasks that it, that it has promised for itself. And the, the revolutionary aspirations of those Sudanese Democrats of two years ago can at last be fulfilled, that the revolution can be, can be accomplished and the military can be reduced to its much smaller, Thank proper you. role in Sudanese society. And this is all happening when the African Union has been basically saying that it was hoping that to silence guns and to put an end to 
a long era of military coups and dictatorship in that continent. But it seems that we have to wait, and perhaps it's going to be a long way to go before we see more peaceful civilian governments prevailing in the part of the world. Walid Madibo, Jonas Horner, Alex DeWolf, thank you very much for your insight. and looking forward to talking to you in the near future. And thank you too for watching. You can see the program again anytime by visiting our website, aljazeera.com, for further discussion. Go to our Facebook page, that's facebook.com forward slash AJ Inside Story. You can also join the conversation on Twitter. Our handle is at AJ Inside Story. For me, Hashem Ahlbara and the entire team here in Doha. Bye for now. Welcome back, and uh, that was a report uh, on the current uh, situation in the Republic of Sudan, as uh, was noted in the report, and before that, uh, there was a military coup d'etat on Monday, October 25th, in the Republic of Sudan, and subsequent to that, there have been uh, mass demonstrations and unrest. Uh, every day. Uh, today, there was a march of millions, uh, which uh, mobilized many people in the streets. And, of course, the army has met uh, these demonstrations uh, with repression. Uh, so far, it's been reported uh, since Monday, the 11 people have been killed uh, in uh, Sudan in connection with these demonstrations, and over 170 uh, have been injured. And uh, if you want to... Uh, up with what's going on in the Republic of Sudan, all you need to do is log on to the Pan-African Newswire, and that's at panafricannews.blogspot.com, and uh, you can uh, read in detail uh, reports uh, on uh, developments in the Republic of Sudan. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program.
Welcome back. Uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal. Worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for Saturday, uh, October 30th, 2021. And uh, we're broadcasting live uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. That was the voice of Tisha Campbell. Yes, alone tonight. And uh, right now we want to move into another issue uh, that has uh, taken up a lot of uh, newsprint uh, over the last uh, several months, and that is uh, the return of stolen African art uh, from the European colonialists uh, back to the continent. And uh, this has been a major demand of uh, many governments, uh, irrespective of their political orientation. Let's listen in. Should stolen African art be returned? Three institutions in the UK and France are giving back artifacts. But some say the objects should remain in European museums. So, who's right? This is Inside Story. Hello and welcome to the program. I'm Mohamed Jamjoum. European institutions like the British Museum and the Louvre are home to some of the world's finest art. But some of the treasures on display were stolen during colonial times. Experts believe up to 90% of African cultural artifacts were taken from the continent. This week, three European institutions gave back items stolen more than a century ago from Nigeria and Benin. Campaigners who fought for years to return those objects hope it's just the start but others believe the artifacts should remain in Europe. We'll bring in our guests in a moment. First, this report from Ahmed Idris in Nigeria's capital, Abuja. After nearly 125 years in foreign lands, this stolen bronze statue depicting the head of the King of Nigeria's ancient Benin Kingdom is finally on its way home. For more than a century, its beauty and craft was looked at and appreciated by a privileged few. It has taken campaigners and communities from where it was looted decades to get back this object of immense religious and cultural significance. On Wednesday, the University of Cambridge became the first institution to return such an artifact. We're all thrilled at seeing this day arrive, when the bronze is finally returning home. But we're also painfully aware of having deprived its rightful owners for so long of its presence and we offer our heartfelt apologies for this historic wrong. Also in Paris, President Emmanuel Macron led a ceremony to return a set of 26 pieces of artifacts stolen from France's former colony, Benin, in 1892. France had to act given the fact that 95% of the African material heritage is said to be outside of Africa. All young people need to take possession of their history to better build their future. There was no reason to condemn the African youth to be denied access to its own history. Experts say the events of the past few days are significant. There's some sort of potential now through these actions for some truth-telling, for, for even some reconciliation and for returns. So the significance of these items really relates to their iconic status that underline the significance of African art. But campaigners and activists are also aware that getting all of the stolen artifacts back could take a long time. 
The K. Brownlee Museum in Paris holds some 70,000 African artifacts, while London's British Museum has tens of thousands more. While campaigners are happy with the progress in negotiations with countries like Belgium, they're less hopeful with others. In particular, they're worried about the fate of looted items in the hands of private collectors. We want to uh, enable Nigerians, and particularly the Edo people, to see what belongs to them in uh, objects of uh, history and cultural importance. The campaign to return the Benin bronzes and thousands of other artifacts looted during the centuries-long colonization of Africa has taken a long time. Campaigners hope the events in the United Kingdom and France this week will begin a process that could see the return of most of Africa's stolen historic and cultural artifacts. Ahmed Idris, Al Jazeera, Abuja. Many countries worldwide are campaigning to get their stolen artifacts back. Mexico recently showcased 1,500 indigenous rare pieces that were in European museums. It's recovered more than 5,700 items since 2018. Museums in Canada have started returning indigenous art, including Cree beaded hoods made in the 1850s. Nearly 2,000 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultural heritage items have been repatriated to Australia from overseas. New Zealand has brought back the remains of 800 indigenous people after it created a repatriation program to return stolen Maori and Moriori heritage. And India is still battling to bring back historical artifacts that were stolen during its colonial rule and independence in 1947. All right, let's bring in our guests in Cambridge, UK, Sonita Elaine, Master of Jesus College at Cambridge University. In Princeton, New Jersey, Chika Okeke Agulu, Professor of African and African Diaspora Art History at Princeton University. And in London, Ed Cross, curator, gallerist, and owner of Ed Cross Fine Art. A warm welcome to you all, and thanks for being with us today on Inside Story. Sunita, let me start with you. Jesus College, of course, has become the first institution in the UK to return a Benin bronze. I want you to talk our audience through just how significant a step that was and what it means to you and your colleagues. Well, I think it, um, uh, thank you, Mohammed. Um, it was, I think we were the first institution in the world to, to return a bronze. It, it was very, very significant. Um, uh, the journey of the restitution in our college began in 2016 when some students noticed uh, the plaque at the bottom of the, uh, the Okoko or um, that uh, was uh, residing in the Hall of Jesus. In 2019, we had um, a legacy of slavery working party that was set up, looked at the, uh, the historical, the, the moral and the, the legal framework which, by which the, uh, the Okoko had come to the college in 1905. Um, and then when I became master in October 2019, it was the first order of, of, on the agenda for a society meeting, which is the meeting of the whole fellowship. It's the, you know, from, the, from the, the teacher, the fellow who's come last into the college to someone who's been there the longest. And it was a very unanimous decision that, frankly, it was, it was wrong that we had it. And it was the right thing to do to get it back to uh, its original owners. So it was very emotional. And um, I think that the fellowship, I, I felt very proud as master of the college because I felt like it's when good people get in a room and make a good decision, then good things happen. Chica, from your vantage point, uh, just how much of a milestone are these handovers? Well, it, it's quite tremendous uh, and uh, a, a wonderful moment, uh, precisely because uh, apart from the 
specific significance of the return of this uh, artifact from Jesus College, uh, it sets a very clear and direct uh, precedent for the broader question of the return of uh, Benin artifacts that were uh, looted and stolen in 1897. Uh, if you saw the news uh, coming out of Nigeria in the past two days, uh, you would see how uh, uh, important this occasion uh, is for the Benin people, for Nigerians, for Africans uh, on the continent and uh, in the diaspora. Uh, precisely because it does begin the process of amending uh, the criminal act uh, that were perpetrated uh, by colonial powers uh, by expropriating and looting treasures uh, from uh, various uh, uh, parts of the continent. Uh, the Benin case, of course, is the most well-documented, perhaps the, the most expansive of these uh, acts of looting, but there are several others um, around the continent um, in Dahomey, uh, the Ashanti, uh, and, and elsewhere on the continent. So this is a very important moment, and I am hoping that it's well only just beginning. Ed, from your perspective, do you believe that this is the beginning of a process that could see the return of many more stolen artifacts? Yes, I mean, I'm not, uh, obviously not a, a museum, but being far from being a museum official, but uh, I absolutely believe that. I think that it's, it's really not tenable, in my own personal opinion, um, to, to retain uh, these artifacts that, I mean, particularly the, and most of them are in that, in that category, um, artifacts that have extremely dubious um, you know, um, uh, were acquired in the most ex extremely dubious way. So, um, uh, stolen, in, in, in fact. Um, and it's interesting to see how the, sh the dial has shift on, shifted on this over the last, I mean, I've been in contemporary African art promoting it for 20 odd years uh, as an English person. And I've seen that uh, the, the, the sort of understanding of what, what happened in the colonial period uh, sort of filtering through to to, to more and more people, um, and it's now it's it's now very very compelling that uh, these works are returned. It's it's a matter of, I think it's it's a spirit. It's you can talk about spiritual things, but it's 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 extremely important for contemporary African artists. I believe that some of these works, or, or you know, that these works are actually where they should be. Um, I also believe that uh, people talk about sharing works and things like that. I mean, I believe the ownership, personally, should should revert to uh, the original owners. But I also think there is a case for agreements to be made uh, so that works can be displayed again for periods of time in the institutions that have safeguarded these works over the years allowing more and more people to see them internationally. Um, but I believe that the, the principal ownership and the principal residency, if, if you like, of these works should be back in, in the countries from which they, they, they were taken. Sunita, I saw you reacting to some of what Ed was talking about there. Let me ask you, when it comes to the issue of the possibility of returning looted works, um, is this going to be more of a case of artworks actually 
being returned, or are we going to see more arrangements uh, going forward where artwork is shared or lent? Well, I think it's um, I think it'll be a mix, but I think it should be the choice of, uh, particularly with uh, Benin Bronze in uh, thinking of that as the, the form of my mind, obviously, it should be the choice of Nigerian Benin. Uh, I think that once you uh, realise that um, once you realise that something is wrong and you and you take the moral um, imperative, it's a moral imperative to do the right thing. It has to be returned yes. with no caveat. Um, so yes. I think maybe I reacted to the Ed used the word safeguarding, which uh, in a way is is because they're in the possession of um, of, uh, of of places. And I do think that he's right though in terms of um, the simplest thing to do and. Uh, in a way, it's a, it's a profound thing that the college did, and it's profound only because we're the first to do it. But I think that the simple act of just doing a legal transfer, you know, it's, it's really straightforward. Do a legal transfer, list all the objects that you have, and make the legal transfer over to the Nigerian government. And I think whilst uh, I know that they, in Benin they're planning to, to build a, a, a museum, there's another other plans for other museums as well. But museums are, are very um, mature in the, 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 the framework where they kind of loan things around the world and so that across the world we can, we, can, um, we can revel in and we can see each other's artwork. I mean, that's just absolutely, yeah. that's absolutely wonderful. Mm. At the moment in Jesus, we have a, um, uh, an exhibition of Shaji Sikando on Islamic art. We, you know, we, we, we do this all the time. Galleries work in a very, very mature way. But the, the fundamental thing is that the, the ownership is now beyond, it's uncontestable. And I, I agree with, um, with Ed, I think something Ed was hinting at, which was that it's really important for young people to be rooted in their past and to see their past. Uh, and in the UK, in, in Cambridge and London, uh, we do that all the time. We want, we want young people to be able to come in and see their past. Chica, you know, we've been talking a lot about the importance of art and artifacts being returned. I want to just take a step back for a moment and look at the impact of these artifacts being taken in the first place. You know, it's been estimated that perhaps up to 95% of cultural objects from Africa are housed outside the African continent. What does it mean for societies to lose so much of that cultural legacy? How devastating is that? Well, I think the best way to uh, respond to that is to imagine if all the uh, so-called great museums of Europe uh, were uh, emptied of their collections, uh, how to even begin to imagine the, 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 the narrative, the stories, the mythologies uh, that uh, have been constructed uh, around this idea of Western civilization. And kids are taking to the museums to tell them the story of, uh, of, of Western civilization, of Europe's history through the artworks um, and cultural uh, artifacts that are lodged uh, in, in these museums. And then you look at what happened with the African continent, the, the vast systematic expropriation of its cultural heritage. And by the way, um, one should also uh, pay mind to the other act of um, expropriation, which was uh, the age of slavery and what that did to the continent in terms of taking away um, some of its best people and minds and bodies uh, uh, away from the continent and how that depressed uh, societies and cultures across the board. 
And so if you think about the equivalence of that, which is part of what makes a society, uh, part of how a society imagines itself, how it teaches its young, and how it uh, uh, constructs uh, its present and future, that without the cultural um, uh, resources that had been there for the, uh, in the first instance, as part of how these societies um, are developed, related with other people, that these are uh, incredible cultural archives. Uh, so it, 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 it's equivalent to imagining mm. if you didn't have your great libraries and museums mm -hmm. uh, and, and cultural centers. That is part of what happened to the African continent. And so the return of these objects mm -hmm. uh, sometimes to their original site, sometimes in, uh, to new institutions, because Africa has also evolved over these uh, decades, mm -hmm. uh, uh, established new forms of socialities and cultural institutions. The return of these objects and reincorporation of them into the new uh, uh, um, uh, social uh, environment and cultural institutions that um, Africans are more than willing to uh, establish in addition to the ones that they have already in existence, mm -hmm. that it would mean a lot in terms of um, uh, social reaffirmation, cultural reaffirmation mm. of the subjectivities and, and identities of African peoples, especially in this present uh, age of globalization. Ed, I saw you nodding along to some of what Chico was saying, so I want to give you a chance to jump in. But I also want to ask you, you know, you were talking before about how much attitudes have shifted uh, around this particular subject matter. Um, so why has it taken this long to get to this moment? I think there has been, you know, a kind of uh, denial uh, amongst, you know, European, Europeans about the slave trade and about colonialism. Uh, there's certainly been a denial within the UK about the impact of, of our empire and, and, and our colonial, you know, history. history. Um, so I, I put it down to denial, really. And I think it, it's been chipped away at by, by sort of academics and activists and, and writers and intellectuals over the years. And in the last 20 years, you know, what was once the fringe view uh, is now, as I say, is, is really right in the center. It doesn't mean to say that everyone subscribes to it. Of course, there's still many people, as unfortunately, who are still in denial, but it can't really be avoided anymore um, a, 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 in totality. Um, so, yes, it's, um, I think it's, it's, it's an amnesia uh, problem. Mm. Um, and we, we have, we've made you know, things have moved on. and It's really good to see that. I mean, it's, we've got a long way to go, but over the last, over the 20 years or so that I've been involved in this, it, it's changed dramatically, mm. and not to mention the growth of contemporary African art and so on, which in some ways is a reaction, in, in some ways I would, I would sort of posit, is it was, some of it was a kind of reaction away, ironically, from traditional African art, uh, because that's what the world thought about when, when you talked about African art. Mm. It was all about traditional African art. And there was a new, uh, a whole new world of contemporary African art. And I think what's been going on, particularly over the last 10 years, as I see it, is more and more artists, you know, really engaging with their, with their heritage and their, this incredible, uh, you know, that Chico was talking about, this incredible richness 
that the of the archive that is there. I mean, I think about the, the artist behind me, um, Abbe Odedino's work. He his house is completely full of traditional, amongst other things, but mm-hmm. traditional African art. Mm-hmm. So he has created his own kind of museum in in Brixton, uh, which is his. It's not a museum; it's where he lives, uh, mm-hmm. and he feeds off of uh, this incredible richness. And there are many artists, obviously, there are many artists like that, and I'm, I'm delighted to see that. And I think the return of these things mm-hmm. will, will kind of, uh, will, will be a hugely significant when it happens, and I really do believe it will. Uh, so, Nita, of course, returning uh, artworks and artifacts, is that, that's one issue. A separate issue is presenting the artifacts that are already in many of these institutions in the West do you think that we're going to start seeing more museums, more uh, arts institutions start labeling collections more truthfully? Will they start presenting more context about the violent, looted past associated with these artworks and artifacts? I think so. I think there's a, a shift towards that. I mean, really, museums uh, and uh, you, know, you know, gallery spaces and, and houses and universities. They're all, they all have one shared characteristic, which is their places of learning. Um, and I think that as we kind of move forward, uh, being able to kind of research and, and present a, a, a full case to people, uh, it's not kind of denying what happened in the past, or it's just kind of saying, well, this is the truth of this object. This is, gives you more information about it, or this is the context for it. Um, I don't think there's anything, there's anything wrong with that. And I think that more people are, are beginning to do that, which I think is a good thing. But I just want to say, though, that you keep referring to the, the, the bronzes as artwork. Yes, they're very beautiful. But one thing that we've we've realised through this um, our kind of look at this is that these are kind of spiritual objects. Mm. You know, the, the Okoka in the, that we had at Jesus uh, is um, emblematic and it memorialises um, a queen mother from the the royal ancestral um, family of of Benin. So it's a it's an actual ancestral it's an heirloom. It's a it's a memorial object, and but most of them most of them are. So they they have a different spiritual meaning uh, when different people look at them, um, which is I think yeah. that to bring them back kind of brings them back to life to where the the, the correct eyes are looking at them. I think that's why I, I think it's important actually mm-hmm. to, to make that case that we keep talking about these artwork. Right. But they're much more than that. Chica, um, our artists and campaigners who have worked so hard to get to this point um, as far as putting pressure on museums, as far as negotiating with governments. Uh, are they happy with the progress made thus far? And, and what happens next? Um, well, yes, happy is that um, very small progress um, is beginning to uh, happen. But make no mistake about it, uh, we're only just beginning. Uh, the, the, the scholars, uh, activists, artists, um, policymakers that are locked in uh, on this question. There is absolutely no going back. Um, and as I say this, I uh, have in mind uh, American institutions that have largely uh, played the ostrich in this whole affair. Uh, all the news that we're uh, getting these days about restitution of African artifacts are coming from Europe. And so you wonder what the Americans are doing. And to be frank, uh, that's probably the next um, uh, target in terms of 
uh, insisting that they begin to tell us what they plan to do about these um, artifacts that are also in their collections and, and, and their museums. Uh, previously, we heard that, um, well, colonization was an European affair in terms of Africa, and so this is an European problem. But this is so nonsensical, you know, really uh, crazy argument to make because Germany did not loot Benin artifacts, right? They acquired them in the same way that the American institutions acquired them from uh, all kinds of sources. Mm -hmm. But Germany is now returning more than a thousand objects that are in its collections. And so we're all waiting and uh, asking what mm -hmm. these other museums across the planet, especially in the United States, are going to do about uh, the, the mm. stuff that they are keeping, because we will not um, keep quiet about it. Mm -hmm. It's a new generation of, uh, of scholars and activists that are very uh, uh, clear about uh, addressing these injustices of history. It's more than 100 years now, and it's about time to begin to um, take them to task. Mm -hmm. uh, it's no longer business as usual. All right. Well, we have run out of time, so we're going to have to leave the conversation there. Thank you so much to all of our guests, Sonita Alain, Chika Okeke Agulu, and Ed Cross. And thank you, too, for watching. You can see the program again anytime by visiting our website, aljazeera.com. And for further discussion, go to our Facebook page. That's facebook.com forward slash AJ Inside Story. You can also join the conversation on Twitter. Our handle is at AJ Inside Story. From me, Mohammed Jamjoum, and the whole team here, bye for now. Welcome back. And uh, that was a report on uh, the struggle to return uh, African art uh, to the continent, uh, which has become a major issue uh, in recent years. And, of course, the uh, news reports uh, that have uh, surfaced over the last few weeks are in regard to France and Britain, as well as Germany. We'll take a break. We'll be back with our concluding segment for this week.
Detroit's own um, Bia Inkster, a suburb uh, of Detroit, uh, the Motown sound of the Marvelettes uh, with the tune entitled Danger, Heartbreak, uh, Dead Ahead. Uh, this is our final segment uh, for today's program, and uh, we're going to look at uh, some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day impacting the world and the African continent uh, from uh, CGTN. Let's listen in. This is CGTN, China Global Television Network. Hello and welcome to China Global Television Network. This is The World Today and I'm Mahia Mutua in Nairobi. Here are your top stories. Tensions in the Sudanese capital expected to rise with a major protest against the military takeover set for this Saturday. Chinese President Xi Jinping to push for multilateralism in his video link address at the G20 summit. And we update you on the diplomatic row between Lebanon and Saudi Arabia. Let's begin in Sudan, where protesters are planning mass demonstrations later today against the seizure of power by the military. The military takeover has sparked a chorus of local and international condemnation, including pressure from the U.S., U.N. and the African Union. Thousands of civilians have taken to the streets in recent days and dozens have been wounded in clashes with security forces. Several pro-democracy activists have been arrested as well. Well, thousands of Sudanese have already taken to the streets this week with at least 11 protesters killed in clashes with security forces. And Al Jazeera is reporting that the military has relieved several diplomats. Musab Mohsin Ibrahim has more now from Khartoum. The people in the streets was rejecting and refusing what's happening in Sudan and all the people and international people were rejecting this procedure in Sudan. Today is a big day for the million protests. But what happened last night, there was the, the general commander of Wuhan was released six diplomatic, three of them, the ambassador of Emirates and ambassador of Turkey and the ambassador of the South Africa. And they, they released the direct manager for the, inter, for, the international, for the international television and TV they released yesterday and the agency for news they released yesterday. Today, all the people, they went from many different parts but they're not gathering in one part, they will, they will go out from many different parts. And they closed the bridge last night and there was a lot of the fire security and soldiers in all the streets. Elsewhere, Chinese President Xi Jinping will speak via video call at the G20 summit which gets underway on Saturday. Beijing says he will call for true multilateralism. The group of 20 nations is a major platform for international cooperation. It should uphold true multilateralism, carry forward the spirit of unity and cooperation, and seek common ground while reserving differences. The group should jointly face challenges like fighting the pandemic, restoring the world economy, promoting inclusiveness and sustainable development. China is willing to join hands with all parties to make the summit a success. Well, on the sidelines of the meeting, U.S. President Joe Biden met with his French counterpart Emmanuel Macron, 
for the first time since a spat over a U.S. security pact with Britain and Australia. The two leaders agreed to explore making arms export rules more effective. Hermione Kitson reports from Rome. He met with the French President Emmanuel Macron. Now this was an important meeting because it was the first time the two came face to face since the AUKUS row in September. That was of course when Australia scrapped a plan with France in favour of one with the US and the UK for nuclear powered submarines. Now after the talks this afternoon, the US President conceded that perhaps he could have handled the situation a little bit better. What we did was clumsy. It was not done with a lot of grace. France is an extremely, extremely valued partner. Extremely. And a power in and of itself. The U.S. was not the, uh, the only party at stake as present third state. And now what's important is precisely to be sure that such a situation will not be possible for our future. Stronger coordination, stronger cooperation. Well, CGTN's Caroline Malone tells us more about the new security pact that has strained relations between France and the United States. There's a rift to be dealt with at the G20 summit over the US and UK's trilateral deal with Australia, known as AUKUS, which includes nuclear-powered submarine technology. The US is sharing its nuclear propulsion capabilities with an ally for the first time in more than 50 years, which will enable Australia to develop a new fleet. The trio will have to work to repair relations at the summit with European leaders, including France, which had its own diesel-powered submarine contract with Australia cancelled. French President Emmanuel Macron recalled ambassadors to Australia and the US in September over deception between allies. The AUKUS deal is also part of continued US focus on Asia. The relationship between the United States and ASEAN is vital, vital for the future of all one billion of our people. Our partnership is essential. China protested AUKUS back in September. Beijing said the deal seriously undermined regional peace and stability, intensified the arms race and undermined international nuclear non-proliferation efforts. President Biden has characterized the relationship between U.S. and China as one of competition and rivalry as world leaders head into G20 meetings. Caroline Malone, CGTN, Washington. Well, staying with our international stories, Lebanese Prime Minister Najib Mikati is expressing regret over Saudi Arabia's decision to expel the Lebanese ambassador and ban imports from the country. This comes after a Lebanese official criticized the Saudi-led coalition in the war in Yemen, saying the Houthi rebels were defending themselves. Saudi Arabia on Friday gave the Lebanese ambassador 48 hours to leave and decided to halt all imports from the country, citing security of the kingdom. Lebanon's prime minister said his country is committed to good relations with Saudi Arabia. He called on Arab partners to put the diplomatic crisis behind them. China is ramping up measures to contain its latest wave of COVID-19 infections on the mainland. Officials say 378 local cases have been reported over the past two weeks. The new wave has affected 14 provinces. The situation in Beijing and five other provinces is stable. China is now speeding up its booster shot program and is vaccinating children between the ages of 3 and 11. The vaccination of this age group will be completed by the end of this year. COVID-19 vaccine mandates are popping up across the United States and facing resistance from many, including healthcare workers, students and first responders. 
but most legal challenges are failing. Karina Huber has more on why. Protesters gather to voice their opposition to a COVID-19 vaccine mandate that went into effect in New York City this Friday. All city workers, including firefighters and police officers, are now required to have had at least one dose of a COVID-19 vaccine. Those who refuse can be forced to leave without pay. Obviously, we've given people a lot of time, first in the voluntary phase, then in the vaccinate or test phase. It's time to keep moving. The head of the main union representing firefighters has encouraged his unvaccinated members to defy the mandate. The UFA at this time will explore all avenues to protect our members. We will work with the MLC and the other unions to fight this mandate and keep this a personal choice. New York's largest police union filed a lawsuit to halt the mandate. It was rejected by a New York state judge. What's happening in New York is a microcosm for what's happening around the rest of the country. Cities and states are increasingly mandating workers get vaccinated. Lawsuits are being launched in response without much success. The vast majority of these lawsuits are failing. So the vast majority of mandates are being upheld. Jennifer Pyatt works with an organization that has been tracking legal decisions related to COVID-19 vaccine mandates. She says only four out of 36 mandates have been struck down. Courts are upholding a state's right to implement vaccine mandates using a 1905 Supreme Court decision as precedent. Called Jacobson versus Massachusetts, the case was brought forth by a Lutheran pastor who objected to a vaccine mandate during a smallpox outbreak. The court ruled in favor of the state, saying no one has a constitutional right to refuse vaccination. So courts are relying on that case in large part and saying it's, it's the same situation here. Um, and in fact, some courts are saying it's even easier now because of exemptions that are being required that were not provided, you know, back in Jacobson's time. In Jacobson's time, there was a medical exemption, but no religious exemption. Most of the vaccine mandates today include both loopholes, making it exceedingly difficult to argue that vaccine mandates violate an individual's constitutional rights. This is giving cities and states the confidence to impose more mandates. Karina Huber, CGTN, Warwick, Massachusetts. Meanwhile, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration has authorized the Pfizer COVID vaccine for emergency use in children as young as five. It is the first vaccine approved for younger children in the United States. It will still be administered in two doses, but at a lower dose than that used for individuals older than 12. Children between the ages of 5 and 11 make up nearly 40% of cases in kids, Officials say vaccinating younger children is critical to keeping schools open and bringing the nation closer to normalcy. Authorities at Uganda's Entebbe International Airport have pushed back against claims that passengers entering the country are experiencing hours-long delays over COVID-19 tests. Uganda imposed mandatory coronavirus testing for all arriving passengers. Each traveler is required to pay $30 for a test Yonsenyange tells us more. The mandatory COVID-19 testing for all incoming travelers started last week. However, some arriving passengers say they had to wait for hours or longer for their test results. Five PCR test machines with the capacity to test 300 samples per hour have been installed at the airport. Results are supposed to be back in two hours. 
The airport authorities, however, say recent social media posts over the delays are over-exaggerating the problem. We had a few passengers who had not filled in information online prior to coming to the airport, which caused the delay. There were also a few others who had challenges with payment, who did not want to pay, they had issues over payment, and all that created a little bit of scaffold, among other teasing challenges. At the height of the COVID-19 pandemic in 2020, Uganda closed its own international airport for close to six months. It was later reopened in October last year, and the airport has been getting steadily busier with a daily average of 1,900 passengers. Leon Sanyange, CGTN, Kampala, Uganda. And that's it for this edition of The World Today. I'll be back shortly with more news from the continent on Africa Live. Thanks for watching. GTN, China Global Television Network.
Sudan braces itself for more tensions with a major protest against the military takeover set for this Saturday. Chinese President Xi Jinping to attend the G20 summit via video link. And we look at what Uganda is doing to enhance its wildlife conservation efforts. Hello and welcome to Africa Live only on CGTN. I'm Mahia Mutua in Nairobi. Also coming up, transparency in Tanzania's mining and gas sectors inspiring confidence in investors according to a new report. And in sports, we get reaction from Egypt as Liverpool's Mohamed Salah becomes Africa's leading goalscorer in English Premier League history. Let's begin in Sudan, where protesters are planning mass demonstrations later today against the seizure of power by the military. The military takeover has sparked a chorus of local and international condemnation, including pressure from the United States, UN and the African Union. Thousands of civilians have taken to the streets in recent days and dozens have been wounded in clashes with security forces. Several pro-democracy activists have been arrested as well. Well, now for the very latest on the situation there, Musab Mohsin Ibrahim now joins us live from Khartoum. Uh, Musab, thank you for joining us. What can you tell us about the build-up towards that planned major protest against the military takeover in Sudan? Well, what you know about the military over everything, the, the people, they were... They, they went for the protest, asking for the rights and searching for asking for democracy, asking for rights. So most of the people today they went out asking for the rights because they wanted the, the vice president Abdullah Hamidov to get back and hold up the transmission government, and they asking. We're unable to catch up with Musab. We will try to get him later on. Musab Mohsin Ibrahim joining us live there from Khartoum. Uh, well, Mubarak Ardol, who is the official spokesman for the Forces of Freedom and Change, which is a coalition of 10 rebel groups, spoke to the press about the ongoing political unrest in Sudan. Let's listen in. As a group, we did not meet with Hamdok, but yesterday, I learned that groups, individually, are trying in different ways to bring their views closer to the return of Hamdok, again as Prime Minister, and the formation of a government of technocrats. We have no objection to this, but our only condition is that the government be independent technocrats. Until the Prime Minister can control it, in the party government, you as a Prime Minister cannot take any decision regarding any of the ministers because you fear the political incubator or the party he belongs to. With regard to the position of the U.S. government in stopping the aid, which is $700 million, if we come to the account during the transitional period, the United States was the only country that fined Sudan more than $400 million. They fined us more than $400 million for crimes that we did not commit, but rather committed by the previous regime. We cannot allow him to buy our political decision for $700 million. We call on the organizers of the demonstrations to stay away from violence, and we call on the security forces to deal with them peacefully. In order to spare the blood of the Sudanese, 
and this is very important because we do not want more wounds, tears and loss of lives and we call on citizens to abide by the emergency law because the emergency law is in force now and denying this fact will not be beneficial to the stability of the country. Well, world leaders have gathered in the Italian capital Rome for this year's G20 summit. It is the first in-person meeting among leaders from the most advanced countries since the coronavirus pandemic. Climate change, the global economy and COVID vaccines are set to top the agenda. Uh, well, for more on the G20 summit, let's now hear from Hermione Kitson, who joins us from Rome. Hermione, uh, what is the latest as the summit gets underway in the Italian capital? Well, the G20 summit here in Rome officially kicked off this morning with world leaders gathering at the convention centre for the official welcome from the Italian Prime Minister Mario Draghi. Uh, they, this is the first time they're all meeting face to face, of course, since the beginning of the pandemic. The key areas of discussion today will be the pandemic and also the global economic recovery. The G20 health and finance ministers actually met yesterday afternoon in Rome to discuss these topics and they say they want 70% of the world's population vaccinated against COVID-19 by the middle of next year and they convened a special task force to ensure that this will be achievable. Key areas of debate are really how to deliver more vaccines to developing countries who need it most as many of the richer countries are now in their booster phase of vaccination and many poorer countries are still in their initial stages of immunization. And uh, Hermione, what should we then expect to dominate the agenda tomorrow? Okay, tomorrow what will dominate talks is climate change and sustainable development. It is really hoped that this weekend there could be some clear commitments made ahead of the COP26 climate summit in Glasgow uh, next week. The United Nations Secretary General says there needs to be more uh, decisive action taken by the G20 nations this weekend ahead of the United Nations summit uh, next weekend. This next week there seems to be a lot of division still about how to phase out coal and also how to keep global warming uh, with Within one and a half degrees Celsius. So a big weekend of some very important discussions uh, this weekend. We'll just have to see in terms of what kind of commitments these world leaders uh, can agree to. All right, Hermione, thank you very much for joining us on Africa Live. Hermione Kitson speaking to us live from the sidelines of the G20 summit in Rome. Well, it's time for us to take a short break here on Africa Live. Here's what's coming up. Ethiopia's Tedros Ghebreyesus on course to serve a second term as head of the World Health Organization. And we look at what Uganda is doing to enhance its wildlife conservation efforts. How will your world change today? What happens here? What happens there? Or what you make happen for yourself? If it matters to you, it matters to us too. Your stories are these stories that need to be told. Africa Live. Find your voice.
Welcome back. Now, the World Health Organization's Director General Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus is set to be appointed for a second term in May 2022 after no other candidates were put forward for the post by the WHO member countries. He was the only candidate nominated by 28 countries. Here is CGTN's Enoxicolia with more details. By the end of the deadline day, only one name had been fronted by member states for the position of Director General of the World Health Organization, Tedros Ghebreyesus. Nominations were done secretly through confidential envelopes that were sent to member states. The WHO boss got the support of France and Germany, among other European Union members, and three African countries, Botswana, Kenya and Rwanda. Germany and Spain maintain that strengthening the UN agency in the wake of the pandemic must continue with full and undivided commitment, saying the organization needed strong, pragmatic and visionary leadership. The 56-year-old biologist has worked as a field-level malarologist in Ethiopia before leading a regional health bureau and then joining the government, working his way up the ministerial ranks. Okay. In 2017, he became the first African to head the powerful UN agency. Tedros has been the public face of the World Health Organization since the COVID crisis began and is relatively popular due to his role in steering the organization's efforts to coordinate the pandemic response. Tedros continually rages against the me-first approach in vaccine distribution, maintaining that these actions will only prolong the pandemic. He has been urging countries to do it all to bring the pandemic under control. He recently apologized to victims after a devastating report on allegations of rape and sexual assault by workers sent to fight Ebola in the Democratic Republic of Congo between 2018 and 2020, found that 21 WHO members had committed such abuses. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for what was done to you by people who were employed by WHO to serve and protect you. I'm sorry for the ongoing suffering that this event must cause. I'm sorry that you have had to relieve, to relieve them in talking to the Commission about your experiences. African diplomats in Geneva have described Tedros as a friend of Africa who has done a lot for the continent. An Oxycolia, CGTN, Nairobi, Kenya. South Africa is battling a devastating avian influenza outbreak that has so far killed thousands of endangered seabirds along its coastline. The disease appears to be concentrated amongst seabirds along the western and southern province and has affected endangered Cape Cormorant colonies. Now, conservation experts are concerned this highly contagious viral disease could severely impact the threatened African penguin population. CGTN's Travis Andrews tells us more. South Africa's endangered Cape Cormoran population is in danger. It is facing an avian influenza outbreak like which the country has never seen. Over 11,000 Cape Cormorans have already died as the disease continues to take hold of breeding colonies. Seabird Rehabilitation Centre Sankob has been leading efforts to contain the outbreak. 
we have to unfortunately put down symptomatic birds because you cannot treat the disease. And then it's only been in the last month that Cape Cormorant suddenly became affected. And that's we're getting more and more Cape Cormorant calls coming in. And then on further investigation at the colonies, suddenly there were these very large numbers that were getting sick and dying. And that's where we are at the moment, that in some of the colonies up to 500 birds are dying every day. The disease appears to be concentrated in populations of wild seabirds and is mostly affecting the Cape Cormorants. Some endangered African penguins have also been affected though and the species remains vulnerable to the current outbreak. In 2018 we had a similar outbreak and penguins were affected and died uh, in South Africa and as well as, as in Namibia. And although it didn't have a colony level outbreak that was very severe, there were still several hundred birds that died from the disease. Uh, this year we've had a few cases in penguins, mostly in carcasses that have been found and um, very small numbers at the moment, but we're still very afraid that it can cross over to the African penguin and that could really cause a big problem if it's as infectious in the penguin as it has been in other species. For now, most efforts are centered on separating the infected birds from the healthy ones in order to mitigate the spread of the disease. More than 5% of South Africa's entire Cape Cormorant population has succumbed to avian influenza in just one week and conservation officials are concerned more are dying by the day. Now they plan to open a new quarantine facility in Cape Town to determine which birds are infected with the disease and need to be euthanized. Ramzanu's CGTN, Cape Town. Now Uganda is celebrating the life and times of its once oldest chimpanzees by raising awareness about conservation of the apes. Zakayo died in 2018 at the age of 54 after battling stomach complications. Isabel Nakiria has more on that story. Zakayo's two wives, Amina and Ruth, and son Shaka are part of this community of chimpanzees. They are keeping the legacy of Uganda's once famous chimpanzee alive. Zakai was an interesting chimp, and every time you would look at him, you would feel happy. But it's sad that he died when I wasn't in the country. I just watched the news on TV, and that's why I'm here, so that I can just enjoy looking at his family. Zakayo played a legendary role as the oldest chimp ever in Uganda. He was known to be caring. This monument was constructed in memory of Zakayo who lived here for over four decades. Visitors to this park remember him for his fatherly figure and friendliness. Another chimp has been named after him, an animal keeper's pay. He behaves exactly like Zakayo. Many visitors who came to the zoo were fond of Zakayo. Zookeepers say they miss his sense of responsibility to the younger chimps. Zakayo? He had made our work easy because he used to adopt the new ones who are being brought. And now that one made our work of integration easier because each individual that he could rescue could become very easy for that individual to get acclimatized and cope up with a new environment. Zakayo, the once dominant male chimp, was an ambassador of conservation. He died on 27th October 2018, and annually, the zoo remembers him the entire week. Activities to mark the week include tourists participating in feeding of the chimps. 
Visitors to the zoo are encouraged to buy souvenirs with pictures and names of the chimpanzees and the proceeds go to the conservation of the primates. There are just about 300,000 chimpanzees left in the wild globally. The Entebbe Zoo says more efforts are needed in protecting chimpanzees so they can live as long as Zakayo. Isabel Nakiria, CGTN Entebbe, Uganda. Let's take you to Nigeria now where blood meal is a delicacy. When animals are slaughtered, the flesh is cooked and served as a source of protein while the blood is considered waste. But many Nigerians are using the blood as both nutrients for their farm and as food for their families. Here is more now from CGTN's Kelechie Mekalam. 49-year-old mother of six, Mary Pambot, preparing one of her family's favorite delicacies, blood meal. It's fresh animal blood collected from the abattoir, spiced and cooked. For Mary and her family, it's a cheap substitute for costly proteins. We eat blood as a meal. The reason we do this is because we can't really afford meat. That's why we cook it and eat. Once we eat it, we have eaten meat. We eat it because it is sweet, since the animal itself is a healthy one. The Nigerian government puts the country's annual beef consumption at an estimated 360,000 tons. But according to the Bureau of Statistics, there are about 83 million Nigerians who live in poverty and can barely afford meat. So merchants like Rufus Daniel will dry and repack blood meals for low-income earners. He makes about $500 profit monthly from sales. Someone introduced me to the business and I see it's okay. There's amount, there's a, like there's value in it. There's money in it, so that's what motivates me to keep on doing it. One kilo is 300, 300 naira, naira. Then um, one bag, that big bag, like I said, is 35,000 to 40,000 naira. Then one ton is 150,000 naira. But how safe is the consumption of blood meal? Blood in, in whatever form should not be recommended. I mean, for eating. I mean, uh, I wouldn't recommend. But the truth is, some of these animals on their own have a lot of diseases. So even before you eat them, even in the course of processing, okay, even in the course of processing, uh, Ebola came, we talked about all sorts of monkeys here and all that, and all sorts of you know, animals. Um, Lassa from rats and all. Apart from eating it, Farmers use blood meal as high nitrogen organic fertilizer to grow their plants. Health experts warn that if taken in excess, it could result in high deposits of iron in the body and cause serious health complications. Kelechi Emekalam, CGTN Abuja, Nigeria. Well, staying in Nigeria, where the country's creative industry is valued at over $100 million. It now boasts artists who are turning locally sourced materials into artistic treasures. Some of these works were on display at a recent exhibition in Lagos to showcase some of the best made in Nigeria furniture and other home accessories. CGTN's Deji Bademosi now reports. Every item here is made from locally sourced materials. Most of the artists who are showcasing their work at the Eco Design Exhibition are young women. 
26-year-old Elizabeth Awodu is one of them. She ventured into furniture making last year. And now, she's showcasing this unique furniture set made from cut-out pieces of reclaimed woods. Everything we've worked together, we put roots together, we put um, life edge, we infuse it, the abnormality, the curve, the uneven edges, those are what we actually admire, this is what we actually inspired the whole design. So I, I just look forward to showcasing more of these designs to the world at large. This piece of furniture is made out of a popular traditional textile material, locally known as Ashoke in southwest Nigeria. Beyond its use as a ceremonial outfit, the artist is demonstrating its other utility value by designing contemporary armchairs with the material to create regal pieces that showcase the pattern, color and texture of the cultural Yoruba fabric. We realized that Ashoke was underused. It's just after a wedding, you just throw it away or you just put it in a box. And we wanted a way to um, show our culture um, while using things that are still modern and in use and you know we use around the house and things like that. That's how it started and it's blown our minds as well. While the taste for foreign furniture still endures, there's a growing demand for local crafts. And this exhibition is put together to make a stronger case for made in Nigeria designs. This really showcases what we have, and we have so much. And this is just the tip of the iceberg. There are so many people doing amazing, um, amazing things. So we want to really encourage people to like buy um, Nigeria, and you know we have a lot, and we should be proud of our what we're producing here. Now I think the government should really um, try to support and encourage. I mean the people are doing things, but we need to really have more product designers. But by having that, they can actually be, people can actually export their products out. For the art sector in Nigeria. The much-anticipated future may just be here, with these innovations by the young and vibrant generation. DG Vadimosi, CGTN, Lagos, Nigeria. Right, and here's what's coming up on Africa Live Biz. Transparency in Tanzania's mining and gas sectors inspiring confidence in investors, according to a new report. In the desert country of Namibia, an unlikely fashion movement is amassing growing interest. Laurentius Gibart, or Lou the Vintage Guru, as he is known, is a leading figure in the so-called Afro-Dandy movement. The more you look good, the more people will take you seriously. Together with his friends, he searches out second-hand pieces of clothing, remolding them into bold and exciting new vintage fashion statements. Yeah. Lou is putting African fashion on the map, but he also has a deeper purpose, to make style and dignity accessible to the poor. We have a slogan that says, Prestige, look rich. Time for the business now. A report on transparency in Tanzania's mining and gas sectors shows increased accountability is inspiring more confidence in investors. The 2018-2019 report was unveiled at a ceremony in the nation's commercial capital, Dar es Salaam. Mining licenses were also awarded to Tembo Nickel Corporation, which will mine the world's largest development-ready nickel sulfide deposit. CGTN's Isaac Lukando has more. 
A round of applause to celebrate the granting of a mining license to Tanzanian nickel mining giant Tembo Corporation. Formed earlier this year, the company is a joint venture between the UK's Kabanga Nickel and the Tanzanian government. About 2 million tons of nickel will be produced, potentially earning the government some $7.5 billion and hundreds of locals employed in the mines. You are representing millions of Tanzanians. Make sure you do what is right, that you do your work with the highest standard of professionalism to ensure that we get everything we ought to get as a country. The concurrent release of the 11th edition of the Transparency Report in Tanzania's extractive industry paints a fairly positive picture when it comes to accountability. Investors like Kabanga Nickel, whose mining operations will produce nickel, cobalt and copper metals, believe their ventures will flourish because of it. We are delighted to be partnered with the government of Tanzania to develop this strategic nickel project which will create shared value for all stakeholders. This landmark partnership, based on shared objectives and trust, has been set up between the Tanzanian government and Kabanga Nickel to ensure the economic benefits from Tembo Nickel, our partnership, will be shared equitably. Tanzania's latest extractive industry transparency report points to the government receiving over 9,000 license applications in the minerals and gas sector. Of those, 5,000 applications were successful, with 249 existing licenses being revoked for failing to meet regulatory standards. Mining accounts for about 5% of Tanzania's GDP. The government hopes that by doubling its contribution to the GDP to 10% by 2025, around 1.2 million people who depend on the mining sector will benefit. Through a controversial review of Tanzania's mining laws in 2017, the government now gets a 16% stake in all mining projects in the country. The government argues that changes were made to benefit the majority of the country's 60 million people. We have put in place a good system of reaping financial benefits, with each side getting a 50-50 split in profits. If you look at the distribution of earnings that we have in place, the government gets 51% and the investor gets 49%. Last year, gold exports from Tanzania were worth some $2.9 billion. With the granting of new mining licenses, the government hopes similar earnings can be made with nickel. Isaac Lukando, CGTN, Dar es Salaam. Now, Mara Phones is the first and only African-made smartphones manufacturer based in Rwanda. Since inception in October 2019, Mara has reached more than 40 nations across the continent and the world. CGTN's Girum Chala is in Kigali and sat down for an exclusive interview with Mara Phones Managing Director, Eddie Sebera. Eddie Sebera, thank you so much for talking to CGTN. In October 2019, your company, Mara Phones, came to being, and about 40-plus countries were beneficiaries of a phone made in Africa. Since 2019, I'm sure you have done a lot of things, and the challenge must be there as well. But where are we now? Oh, thank you so much, and always a pleasure to have a conversation with CGTN, because this is not the very first time that we have a thought and sharing our journey. You're very right, it's been uh, two years. I'll call it a roller coaster. A roller coaster of the good and the bad and everything that's happened. Not just for us, 
you've all, you've all seen what's happening around the world with this inevitable situation of COVID. But when you look at it, despite that, it's been a very interesting journey for us. We have now at the end of our, what we, we had planned to be the piloting phase to, pro, to present a proof concept before we ramp up. Last time when we had a conversation, if I recall, we, were, we had already created a relationship and a uh, visibility of our product up to 40 countries. As of uh, end of September, we've actually reached 76 countries. COVID-19 has disrupted almost all economies across the world, and Africa is not really different, or your company, company as well. But what were the lessons learned throughout the challenge that you've passed through, also the opportunities you've got? The less, lesson learned as well through this disruption of our economies in the supply chain, in the logistics and all, all that, it came very, very obvious to us, which was something that we knew, is we need a certain interrelationship with other African countries, not just uh, in the sense of a market, in the sense of Welcome back, and uh, that was uh, Africa Live CGTN uh, discussing a myriad of issues impacting Africa and indeed the world. And uh, we're going to conclude our program for today. This has been the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast, and uh, I'm your host, Abayomi Azikawe. If you'd like to have access to this program, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. Uh, that's at Blog Talk Radio dot com forward slash Pan African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. We're going to close out uh, with the music of John Coltrane with the album, 1961 album, Africa Blast. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week.